Hello, and thanks for listening to our first podcast here at PhotoBrigade.com. I'm Robert Kaplan, and I'm a photographer based here in New York City. I'm also editor of the Photo Brigade blog, which is a resource for photographers to showcase their work to a larger audience of photographers and photo lovers through social media, with the goal of strengthening the freelance photography industry. We have great features, photo industry-related guest posts, tons of great reviews, and check out what professionals around the world carry in their camera bags in our popular In My Bag posts, where you can price and spec useful camera gear. Check us out on the web at thephotobrigade.com and on Facebook and Twitter at Photobrigade. This episode is brought to you by Photoshelter, a professional photography and website archiving platform with built-in sales and marketing tools. Get your 30-day free trial at photoshelter.com, promo code PHOTOBRIGADE. In this episode, my co-host Mike Eisler and I chat with our good friend, photographer and cinematographer Vincent LaFerre, who was in New York City recently for a secretive project with a new and revolutionary piece of camera gear. We discuss his transition from still photography to directing commercial video projects, the business of photography in general, the importance of knowing your cost of doing business, networking, promotion, and we finally learn why he has that silent T in his last name. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the first Photo Brigade podcast. Welcome to the first Photo Brigade podcast. I've got Mike Eisler to my right. And Vincent Lafare on my left. Doesn't really matter what side they're on, but they're here. Um, how you doing, Vince? I'm doing good, thanks. You're gonna have to speak up because we've only got one mic. High tech, but it's cool. Yeah, okay. At least we got a mic. At least we got a mic. We got two mics. We got two mics. Yeah. <laughs> um, so anyway, why are you here in New York? Um, I shot something uh, pretty interesting over the weekend with a new gizmo that's going to come out in a few weeks. I can't really talk exactly about what it is. But uh, it's the most exciting thing I've had in my hands since the 5D Mark II. Really? And it's not a camera. That's all I can say. It's not from Canon. Uh, And it's all I can say. Other than I think it's going to really excite people. Is it a game changer? It actually merits the word game changer. Ooh. I haven't heard the game, word game changer in about six months. So about was... six seconds. <laughs> um, you know, it's actually a word I'm very sh- reticent to use because it's so overused. I think the 5D Mark II is, qualifies as a bona fide game changer. I do think this device qualifies as a game changer. So it's pretty exciting. Filmmakers and photographers, but especially filmmakers of all kinds, will really um, be excited about this. Very cool. So check the blog, check Twitter. Uh, just before NAB, hopefully I'll be able to show something. Yeah. Vince, tell us your URL for your blog. It's just blog.vincentlaufrey.com. That's L-A-F as in Frank, O-R-E-T dot com. Now, why do you have a silent T in your name? Um, it actually comes uh, from the French pronunciation of La Forêt. And it's actually a little Chinese character, an accent circonflexe, as we say, on the E, because it's an abbreviation for La Forest. Oh. Uh, so my name means Vince the forest. of the forest. The forest. It the may forest. or may not be a coincidence, but I've seen a similar pronunciation in Quebecois. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and just for the record, because uh, Mike has been torturing me for years, uh, I am not Canadian. There's anything wrong with that, but uh, Mike has a special penchant for sending me uh, cases back filled with Canadian flags and paraphernalia just to get under my skin. But I like Canadians, so it's totally cool. Well, speaking of Mike, we should probably let everyone know who you are, Mr. Mike Eisler. Can you 
give me a little rundown of what it is that you do in this fine business of photography? Sure. Uh, I'm Mike Eisler. I've been in New York City about six years now, somewhere in that neighborhood, and working in photography for about 10. And uh, I was a photographer for several years. And these days I work as a digital tech on commercial uh, still productions. And in that role, I'm managing digital capture output um, and also assisting in the technical setup of more complicated uh, photo shoots and I dabble in the video world as well, but it's mainly commercial photography. So basically that means that you help photographers do their job for them better, cool. than, they, better than they do it themselves. Exactly. I try to make uh, photographers look good, and uh, they put in minimal effort, and I put in maximal effort. And, uh, you know, the client's happy at the end of the day, and that's what matters. Awesome. And I'm Robert Kaplan. I am a photographer based here in New York City and the founder of Photobrigade.com, thephotobrigade.com. You guys should all check it out, as this is probably where you're listening to the podcast anyways, but that's okay. Um, Vince is laughing at me because I don't really know what to say next. That's so, totally cool. I, I should mention that I worked with Mike for years. I've known him pretty much since he came to New York. Uh, and he is kind of my go-to guy for tech stuff and has always been my aerial, aerial colleague uh, with me in helicopters and pretty much all the big aerial flights I've done, um, logistics and safety. And That's a fun, that uh, fun partnership that we have on the first broadcast that we get to talk about is that uh, Vince and I have spent uh, many years uh, together working on shoots and We've probably done a couple hundred hours in the back of helicopters all over the world, and so we kind of get together and uh, reminisce about these sort of things. Because what happens in the back of the helicopter stays in the back of the helicopter. I don't want it. No, 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 no don't need to hear anymore. It's but, fine. But um, he actually was part of Reverie uh, when we first did the first 5D Mark II, and uh, he was on Mobius as well. Uh, were you on Nocturne as well? I was not on Nocturne, but on Nocturne. I saw the, uh, the product. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. Anyways, what do you guys want to talk about? Before, well, um, I, you know, I was thinking that we could talk about um, maybe your transition from still to video. Sure. Because when I met you here in New York City, I don't know, it's been eight years now since I've moved here, which is pretty crazy. Yeah. Um, you were a staff photographer at the New York Times. Mm -hmm. You helped mentor me. And I very much looked up to your work as a photographer, and many people still do, but nowadays... You are known as a cinematographer. So I guess my question to you is uh, how much work do you do now, uh, stills versus video, and do you prefer one or the other? And, and we'll start there. Sure. I, mean, I love both. I, I will always love photography. In fact, I'm getting back into it. Uh, last year I did two commercial still shoots and one editorial shoot. Everything else has been uh, commercial directing. Um, some cinematography, but less and less, although I'm, I'm more open to doing more. Um, it's just a question of focusing. You know, um, it's hard to be a photographer, a director, and cinematographer, and really pursue all three of those avenues, because they are very different types of disciplines with very different types of skill sets. Um, but basically, I've, uh, you know, when I, I shot with the 5D Mark II, I was uh, propelled into filmmaking, and the first things I did was DP, or be a cinematographer for other people on several really cool projects. And then I found that I really loved um, the storytelling element of it, working on crafting a better story, scripting, working on all the other details that a cinematographer would not. So just concentrating on only the visual um, was fun, but it wasn't as stimulating to me as concentrating on everything from wardrobe to location selection, music selection, editing, grading, you name it, the whole process. And that's, that's why I really love uh, ultimately directing. 
And with your change from being an editorial photographer from the New York Times to working as a commercial photographer in New York to working in the world of movies and video out in mm-hmm. California, do you feel that when you work on the larger productions, lots of people, complicated situations, it's enabling for your creative vision or it's constricting for your creative vision? Well, it's tremendously enabling. I mean, the beauty about film versus uh, still photography is that there's this culture in still photography that the photographer has to know everything. And there's almost, there used to be a little bit of a, you know, back talk if a photographer hired certain assistants that were specialists in lighting. You know, I've heard back in the day, well, that photographer doesn't know how to light anything. You know, they couldn't light their way out of a paper bag, but they have the best assistants. And there's, there's a bit of a stigma associated with that. Whereas in the filmmaking world, uh, that's not only accepted, it's encouraged. Uh, so that if you're a director that doesn't know how to frame something uh, or light, you hire a great cinematographer. If your cinematographer is not a great lighter, you hire a fantastic gaffer. Um, you know, obviously a director has to have a vision and have an ability to make that come together, but the job is to surround yourself with people that are more talented in lighting, lensing, acting, script writing, editing, color grading, music comp- com- uh, composing. You get, you get it. You know, it's, it's about building a team. Uh, it's kind of like being a CEO of a company and you hire yourself, you surround yourself with people that are smarter than you, that have more skills in their specific areas. And you're kind of the the uh, you know the leading the orchestra, if you will, as the conductor, mm-hmm. and it's very accepted. And that's that's why it really expands your possibilities visually. I don't know, uh, even though I started in 3D, I don't know how to do VFX. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to learn how to do them. I'd much rather hire a very talented VFX person or team um, to help me enhance my vision. Mm-hmm. And with that said, you miss the spontaneity of walking out the door with the camera and uh, finding moments, as opposed to. Uh, complicated setups where if you want to change your framing it involves a team of people making adjustments. Absolutely. I mean there's that's the biggest lesson from going from photography to film is that you can afford to be a photographer who walks out your door with one camera, one lens or a few not really knowing what you're going to see, i.e. a street photographer, a photojournalist, a uh, landscape photographer and be a very reactive person. Um, it's always best I found as a photographer though to have some sort of idea and goal and mission Whereas as a filmmaker, um, especially if you're doing narrative stuff, you have to really prepare and have a script and cast and find locations because the teams are bigger and they tend to need permits, uh, parking spots, logistics. Um, it's more expensive, so you have to really plan things out so you don't waste time. You can't show up at a building and find out that they close in half an hour and you've got 15 or 50 people with you. So it's just a different process. It's a very proactive um, and a very much of a... Uh, having a vision and finding ways to make that come to life versus mm-hmm. reacting to a beautiful shard of light going across the street and waiting for someone to step in to that shaft of light to make a beautiful image. Mm-hmm. That's cool. I, I remember in a lot of your speeches um, that I've heard you speak at different <clears throat> expos and whatnot, you have you have a, a slogan or something you always say saying, keep it simple, stupid. Mm-hmm. And I always took that um, to my photography, keeping things very simple. And, and now I notice a lot in, in what you do in video, mm-hmm. the simplicity is gone. I mean, you're, you're doing some really high-tech stuff now. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you still try to keep it simple in regards to your videography? And also, um, what aspects of your still photography have you taken to your video work? Well, even though it's relatively significantly more complex on general on any set that I'm on because there's a number of people involved, I still have, I believe very much in that KISS principle. Um, 
you know, in fact, when I first started in video, I was always the one who brought all this gear, and Mike can attest to that. He came to me with, uh, right after a reverie to Hawaii to shoot this uh, Jamie O'Brien uh, short film that never surfer, really, yeah. surfer that really happened, and we had so much gear that we would not only spend so much time prepping stuff uh, and kill ourselves doing that because it was all prototypes, pieces wouldn't fit, um, but at the same time, as a director. By the time I got on set, uh, I'd made two big mistakes. The biggest one uh, was being mentally exhausted by having concentrating so much on the gear and technical stuff that you it really does take a toll on your brain. Uh, that by the time you come on set, you you're, you're exhausted. That's a big lesson for people to learn is to make sure that they pace themselves and they surround themselves with the team, with producers, etc. Uh, line producers to help you with the logistics and people like Mike to help you take care of the camera. You know, the reason I hire someone like Mike is I know that if I give him a camera and some specific ideas of what I want to do and say, make sure it works, I can trust him to go away with that camera and we get back on set, it's going to work. I don't have to, I can probably figure out 80% of what Mike does, but if I put my mental energy there, I'm not going to be doing the important stuff, which is what a director should be doing, which is, you know, the, the broader picture. Uh, the other big mistake that I made was that instead of prepping as a director, about my vision and a shot list and all the stuff that you need to do as a director, uh, I was prepping gear, and that was a big mistake. And we, we left Hawaii with some gorgeous footage, but no real story. Mm -hmm. And that said, that, that was kind of a rookie mistake. Uh, you know, I went in there thinking I could kind of do a documentary style, but the reality is we were trying to shoot with red, red, red ones at that point and Canon 5Ds and helicopters, and there was just so much technical stuff that we buried ourselves. And then we, on top of that, we could have still pulled something off that's what was quite nice, but on top of that, uh, Jamie had some personal issues with his girlfriend and stuff like that, and we had horrible weather. We had like, you know, five sunny days out of three weeks and one or two days of mediocre waves. So it was a great lesson. I mean, it was, you know, it was a, it was a very trying lesson uh, or experience for me, but I, I'm glad I went through it early and, and kind of got, got a different perspective. So now I love to grab a camera and just walk out the street and shoot. It's very liberating. You know, I, I recently went to Death Valley with just one camera and a few lenses all by myself in the middle of the night shooting. There's nothing more freeing than that. There's still that magic of photography that will mm -hmm. always be there for all of us. And we spent some time uh, touching on gear. I just had another quick follow-up to that. Uh, your blog is very popular with equipment reviews and uh, new gear that's coming out, new technology. Mm -hmm. Maybe 10 years ago we had the iMovie revolution, DVX100 came out. Five years ago we had the HDSLR revolution and that took off. And in recent years we've seen a lot more accessories, uh, different stabilizers, different jib systems, systems to enable the filmmaker to move the camera to capture audio better. And it's all really lowering the price point and barrier for entry for this sort of thing. What do you think is the next revolution that we're going to see enabling filmmakers? Uh, it's a more complex one. Uh, I think uh, stabilization is going to be one. There's a lot of things coming on that, that front. Um, but I think the, the real issue right now is that uh, we need to find a way for filmmakers to connect directly with their audience and be able to monetize what they do. So distribution, possibly. Digital distribution, whether it's Apple TV, Hulu, Netflix, some other service, Vimeo, pay-per-view... Um, that allows independent filmmakers to not only produce content uh, and monetize it, but also to kind of find their audience and realize there's 300,000 people who want to see zombie movies that they, that they make, and they're all willing to pay $3. And guess what? You've got uh, a million-dollar budget to shoot your next film. 
you don't have to go to the studio, you don't have to get financiers, all the pressure and the rigs. Uh, that's a courtesy of the NYPD or FDNY outside there. <laughs> but um, that's the next revolution for me is, is we have all this social media, we have all this content, but no one really seems to know where it's going or how we're all going to make it. Um, because the beauty of the HDSLR revolution is that it enables uh, John Smith out of Omaha, Nebraska, a 12-year-old kid, to be discovered um, because he or she uh, had access to an affordable camera and they're a brilliant person and they don't have that barrier of entry of having to go to film school to get you know 16 millimeter film and processing and pay you know a quarter million dollars to attend that film school to shoot a few shorts in the entirety of their education there, which is ridiculous. At the same time, the problem with the uh, accessibility is that um, we all think now that we can be filmmakers. Uh, I own a 5D Mark II, therefore I'm a cinematographer. I own a Leica M9, therefore I'm a photographer, a photojournalist. And it's a bit of a disease of, our, of this generation that, you know, if you think you buy the gear, you can, yes, you can have the access. It does not give you the skills to do it, though. So the good news is the cream still rises to the crop. The bad news is it's definitely putting a lot of pressure on um, making it as a living, uh, as a photojournalist, as a commercial photographer, as a filmmaker, DP, you name it. Because the more affordable things become, the lower the barriers to entry are. And of course, uh, business is about supply and demand. And when you have a lot of supply uh, and actually decreasing demand, uh, because films now are making big films or very small films or nothing in the middle, uh, it puts a lot of pressure on people. And with that barrier for entry being lowered, how do you think clients' expectations are changing when they see that they can go out and buy a 5D and mm -hmm. uh, a stabilizing system and then they have Final Cut Pro on the computer for 299 bucks? Mm -hmm. Justifying the cost of your creative vision and why it costs ten to a hundred times more than it may cost them to go out and shoot it themselves. So do you feel that that's you, getting? You've got to have a creative vision. That's the thing yeah. is you got to have a clear view, a clear, a clear style and vision that's palpable. You know, I mean, Spielberg or Coppola or Scorsese or Terry Gilliam have a clear voice. You know, as, as does uh, Oliver Stone or Ridley Scott. So they're branded, you know, with that type of, of voice. Um, it's harder for other younger filmmakers to get there. And uh, the high-end clients tend to appreciate that and know what they're doing, and they tend to continue to hire talent and value it. Uh, the medium, a little bit less so. And the low-end, most don't know what quality is. They just want to get that thing up. Uh, and they've got this budget of X, Y, and Z and make it work. And the problem is that's the biggest part of the pie, is the low end. Mm -hmm. you know, if you look at any market, just draw a triangle or a pyramid, and uh, the high end is at the top, but there's very few jobs. There are very few cinematographers and directors shooting big tentpole Hollywood films. You know, and um, there's a lot of people shooting uh, promotional videos or music videos for their friends. Like, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, across the world. And with so much crap being produced in terms of videos, and you know, with uh, the Vine video sharing service coming out, where one can post six seconds of video very easily for sharing, do you think that since we're being inundated with, uh, to use a better or lack of a crap. better word, garbage videos, sure, yeah. that it makes the quality product look that much better and sit on that much higher of a pedestal? It does. It also makes it harder to find the quality product. Um, and um, you know, I think there's 72 hours of video produced every second or uploaded on YouTube. And I think this is also the age where editors and curators are going to become more important. People who actually you know, sift through all this content to find the gems. You know, YouTube 
uh, works and Vimeo to a lesser degree on viral and on number of views. So people see something like you know the Harlem Shake, and within a few days and then weeks it becomes an international phenomenon. I mean, Size and Gangnam Style is a really good example of you know reaching the first video to reach a billion views, um, and that can work. The problem is p when people decide that they're going to make their living on that chance of becoming that one video that gets to a million views or 10 million, 100 million, and they bet everything on that one pony, if you will. It's kind of scary. Um, you know, it's like American Idol. We're in a very American Idol-esque type of world now where everyone wants to like get that big chance, become a millionaire, and you're done if you make it to the finals. Um, and there doesn't seem to be as much of a respect for craft and establishing your craft and the time it takes and hard work. Uh, nor does it seem to be much respect for people paying for people with craft. And that worries me. Um, it worries all, every creative person out there. But um, I hopefully it'll turn around or we all have to evolve. Yeah. So what about um, you know those that want to get into the business of photography and videography? Uh, I know a lot of people look up to your work um, in both formats and you know, really want to know what's what's the key? Is it just being a great photographer? Is it just being a great cinematographer? You know, do you have to be a great businessman? And and with the rise of social media, Twitter, Facebook, and so on, do you think that those play a, a big role um, in so on? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, on a basic level, if you're a genius filmmaker, a photographer, and a terrible business person, and a terrible social media person, you're still going to make it. So if you're just that amazing and good and have that great, those great ideas, um, you don't have to have the rest. For most of us, though, that live in the real world, um, you've got to be a good artist. You've got to be a good business person. It's responsible. You need to know what your cost of doing business is, which is basically you take all of your costs for the year for your cameras, insurance, CF cards, Photoshop description, laptop, uh, and then your you know rent and all that fun stuff. And just add it all up and divide that by about, let's just say, 200 days for the year, which is what you, most people work. And that's your break-even cost of $200, $300, $500 a day minimum for most people uh, that are in this business, if not thousands. I remember you doing that for me Yeah. back when I first moved here. You sat down sat down on your computer and I, you told me all those all the same stuff. It was really helpful. And, and It's uh, such basics. Mm -hmm. I did it with someone last night, in fact, who's starting a, a fashion business and... I said, what's your cost of doing business? She's like, what do you mean? And I just broke it down for her. And it's such a simple thing once you get it. It's obvious. But none of us do it because we're not taught to do it. And then every time someone calls you and you know your cost of business is 250 bucks a day. And they say, I've got a $200 assignment for you. You know that you're losing 50 bucks that day. You're going in the, in the red. Um, and Or they have $1,000 for a five-day shoot. You're going to go in the red on that. So unless you can find ways to monetize that content after the fact, you're losing money. John Harrington's obviously been a big proponent of doing the uh, calculations of cost of doing business and I've read recently that a lot of people have been doing their calculations and they're failing to see the need to tack on a markup or rather they overlook that so they come up with a cost of doing business of X dollars they start charging the client X dollars and the business never grows I mean you, you should have development in there you should have advertising you should have future projects, personal projects built in. And profit and retirement, of course. And God forbid retirement, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and people forget taxes. Uh, the big one. Ugh, it's coming you up. Know, it, it's coming up. Uh, if you were a corporation, it already, already came. And, <laughs> I had my uh, documents sitting on the table when you walked in. Yep. Exactly. And um, 
that's kind of the point is that it's it's a complicated thing and then suddenly when someone says hey I'll pay you a hundred bucks to go shoot this game you realize well just to go out cost me three five hundred dollars three to five hundred dollars or you know if you have an employer or two it might be a thousand dollars and you got to explain to them this this is what it costs for me to update my cameras on a not crazy schedule I mean I'll keep them a little bit old but add up all those lenses and those batteries and CF cards and cords and cables and, and cell service and sure. you'll see how much you're spending. And the flip side of that is some people say, well, what if I had nothing else going on that day? Isn't $100 better than nothing? And what, can you speak to that? I mean, my point of view is that once you get paid $100 from that one client, the rate's never going to go up. Well, that one of the hardest things in business is once you establish a certain rate and it's a low rate. Let's say you do, I've had a lot of friends, people that I mentor call me and said, listen, I just did this job for, for this fashion company and they paid me a thousand bucks. And I was like, for what? To shoot it? To edit it? Is it a usage fee? Like, what do you mean? I'm like, what were the terms of that thousand bucks? Do they own the footage? Do you own the footage? Can they use them in anything they want? Can they put it on a billboard in Times Square? Can they put it on TV around the world? Or do they just pay you for your time and you're going to negotiate that after? Like, what do you mean? And I'm like, okay, let's just, you know, this is what the business is. Depending on the usage, you should have different rates. Now, um, you've got to realize that once you charge a thousand bucks to do something that, let's say, takes you three days to shoot and five days to edit and do you know music and then another five days to, to get up on the site and work with the client, et cetera, and do revisions, you've put um, 15 days of work into that thousand dollars and selling that thousand dollars is less than a hundred dollars a day. And then you go back on the next project with the same client and say, well, I did my math. I realized I was stupid and I can't work for less than $100 a day. So I now need to charge you $10,000. And they're going to look at you like you're crazy. And it's your fault. It's just as much as theirs. Because you did last job for 1000 Why do you want 10000 now? What happened to your ego? You know, I'm going to hire another young person uh, or unexperienced person to do it for 1000 bucks. They'll find them. And you're going to have a very hard time talking your way out of that. And yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm on both sides of like sitting home and doing nothing versus taking a job that's not, not profitable. But what I will say for, on record is that I will never take a job that I lose money on or it's not profitable. It's not equal to my rates uh, unless it's an incredibly cool creative opportunity or has a lot of potential in other ways. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if it has a potential to do I, the short that I did this weekend... Uh, I didn't make a dime off of, but it has a great potential to get a million views or more. And that's, I, ca I write that off at my company as a PR expense. Mm -hmm. You know, and it was a blast to do yeah. for friends. And uh, w were they not friends, I would not have done it. Uh, you know, didn't, were I not to get a, a PR opportunity, I would not have done it either. Mm -hmm. And I think the three of us here being freelancers realize that one of the most empowering things of being a freelancer is the ability to say no to yes. a job. It's an incredibly powerful tool that you have in your bag that people that work for a large corporation or any corporation for that matter don't have the luxury right. and they don't have the ability to say no to a project. So it's a tool that should be pulled out of the bag more often and it's a good negotiating tactic. It's If you're polite about it you know, and say, listen, I, I like your project, I like your company, I like to work with you on future things, but the reality is on this particular project, I don't think you have the budget for me to be able to execute this in the way I think it should be executed. I'd love you to consider me again for a future project. But on this one, I'm afraid I'm going to have to pass. And you can be you know, a little more skillful about it and say, listen, I've got a family obligation or I've got another job it's holding. And um, be honest and say this other job pays five times as more. I'm actually more interested in yours, but I just can't afford to do it right now because I've got bills to pay. And I hope you understand. It's not personal. And, and, and they'll respect will, you for people it. People will respect you and call you back. You know, 
um, if you're a jerk about it, they won't. Right. And, you know, also, it's also business. So, you know, you have to say no sometimes. And sometimes it's difficult to say that, mm -hmm. you know, turn down money, essentially. Yeah. But uh, sometimes you're doing yourself a benefit by turning them down in the first place. You're, you're managing your career and protecting the quality of the work that you do. Um, the hardest thing as a director is to turn down great opportunities because you don't have enough prep time. And the biggest difference, as I mentioned earlier, between film and photography is you don't generally need that much prep time for photography unless you're doing commercial work, usually, or some really thought out photo essay that you can do over several weeks, you know, where you have to really think it through. As a director, no matter what it is, small or big, you've got to really do some prep work. I mean, the reason it looks, when you see Scorsese on set, he just sits there and doesn't move much or do much of anything. It's just stares in the monitor and you're like, I can do that. <laughs> That's a great job. The reason you can just sit there is that he's actually communicated every one of his thoughts about the wardrobe, the lighting, the camera movement, the lens choice, all those things before he ever sets foot on set. The director's job is done before you ever set foot on set. When you're on set, you just make sure that everyone understood your vision, you adapt to the lighting or situation, and you're a little bit flexible. And then, you know, um, I guess this is an on-PG thing, but I, I call the director a, a bullshit meter. He's the only person or she's the only person that's watching that monitor on set that is saying, would I buy this if I were the audience member? And that's pretty much, pretty much what you're, you're doing, because you've, you've already communicated and hopefully rehearsed with your actors and your camera operators, and you can get direction there. But the point is, you're just staring at that monitor, saying, is this what I was thinking of when I started this a month ago? And will the audience like it? Do I buy the performance? And that's why the job looks really easy when you see directors on set. No one shows you the stuff, you know, with the budgets and the decisions you have to make. I mean. You make a thousand decisions a day on a regular basis as a director. Mm -hmm. And I think we touch on that a bit in the still photo world when you look at a producer of a still photo job, which is a wholly overlooked job that people really don't think about on commercial still productions. Uh, when one sees a still photo producer doing almost nothing on set and everything running smoothly, it's easy to overlook all the hard work that went into it to make the production run smoothly. And that, that's a that, really similar That's what you want to see. Because if they're running around on set putting fires out, it's because they didn't do their job before they got on set. It should be a very smooth operation where not only did you prepare for everything that is happening, but you prepared for all the things that could go wrong and you're ready for them. And that's why we're all professionals. That's why people pay us a lot of money. Uh, because it's good to have lights on standby when this, the clouds come out of nowhere. You know, the shoot we had this week, the forecast the entire week prior said rain and snow on Friday, clear on Saturday. Guess what? It was clear on Friday and rain and snow out of the blue on Saturday. You know, and you've got to be ready for that and have plans and, 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 and turn on a dime and not stress out because you can't control the weather. Right on. So um, I guess let, let's, let's move back and talk to some of the folks that are listening that want to know a little bit more about things that they can do to, to help themselves uh, you know, find a career in photography or, or cinematography. Um, a, a lot of you, you mentioned promotion, you know, promotional tools. Um, what are different things like workshops, like um, uh, expos, and uh, networking that you can do that can really help your business and, and help you become a, a well known photographer? Sure, but before we go to that, let's go back to that in one second. Sure. I think we're in an age where, as we just mentioned earlier, there's so much data or movies or photographs out there, so much content, media that how do, you, how do you rise to the top? And it's a very simple answer, actually. So I, it bears mentioning. Good mm -hmm. ideas. 
good ideas. You need to have good ideas as a photographer or a filmmaker and then know how to execute them. If you can figure those two parts out, get some original ideas or find original ideas. You don't have to be a screenwriter as a director. You can see a book that you like or a short story and have it adapted for the screen. You know, Spielberg um, has directed very has written almost none of his films. He did Close Encounters, but the majority of his films are adaptations of novels or, or other movies or books uh, or stories. And that's a very key point. You don't need to be a naturally born story writer. Uh, you, you definitely have to be a good, naturally or well-trained storyteller. Um, so keep that in mind. As a photographer, same thing. I mean, I, I, I meet young people all the time, and I... I cut to the chase. What are your ideas? What do you want to do? What's going to differentiate you from everyone else that's surrounding us right here? And most of them can't answer it. And I couldn't answer it at their age either. But these days, back then it was easier. These days you really have to know what you're doing. So that's, that's number one. If you've got good ideas and you can find a way to execute them well, you're going to be doing really, really well. So especially as a filmmaker. Uh, now all the other stuff, the promotion, etc. First of all, it never hurt to go to a workshop or to a talk. Uh, or to assist someone, uh, you just soak in information, you learn stuff, go to uh, fields that are not yours. So if you're a fashion photographer, go to a photojournalist workshop or vice versa, just to see the world from a totally different perspective. It really helps as well. Uh, and I always tell people to study their failures, not their successes. When you make a mistake, study why you made that mistake and make sure you never make it ever again. That's really smart. Yeah. You know, I, I never got anywhere by looking, staring at how good my good pictures were. I, I stared at the ones that didn't work. And you have certain rules. And if you never make a mistake more than once, you're going to really rise to the top. Like, you know, simple stuff will kill you every time. Going to bed with batteries that aren't charging, mm-hmm. you will get that call the next morning that, you know, the World Trade Center is on fire the first time. Twin Towers, uh, 9-11, but before that. Things happen like that. They never happen when it's convenient. Uh-huh. And if you don't have the discipline to no matter how tired you are, if you went out partying that, partying that night with your friends after the shoot, you've got to have discipline to always charge your batteries and have fresh cards and free hard drives. It's simple stuff, because that will kill you. That's one of the things I do remember about you, having to, when I assisted you on different things, yeah. making us take your all your gear out, mm-hmm. charge it up, clean it up. Yeah. You never have know it ready for the next shoot. Yeah, because you're not going to have time to do it for the next shoot. You're going to be scrambling to do other stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, then comes the social promotion. So I hate going to workshops. I tell you, you've got to have a Twitter account. You've got to have a blog. You've got to do mailings. Because guess what? If you don't have anything interesting to say, you're wasting everyone's time. You're just adding to the massive crap out there. And uh, Mike mentioned earlier my blog and gear. You know, I've done a lot of gear stuff on my blog. There's a, a section on there called uh, the My Gear section. So if you go to my blog on the right, there's educational resources and there's gear section where I list every piece of gear that I use and I explain why. It's a pretty, it, it's the most visited part of the site. And, and again, f- that's blog.vincentlaferre.com. Slash my gear, all lowercase, one word, slash again, uh, forward slash whatever. You screwed it up now. I screwed it up. (laughs) But the point is, uh, if you want to know about audio or about tripods or sliders or lenses or cameras, it's all there. Uh, I've stepped away from the gear part on my blog because uh, as I've grown as a filmmaker, I've realized more and more it's not about about the gear. It's about the ideas and the storytelling aspects. So now uh, my blog is focusing a bit more on my experiences and the knowledge I learned because guess what? It's not because people don't want to know about gear. They still do. You know, even though I put it out there, there's people every day getting into this. You can't forget, forget that. But I don't want to write about it. That's the truth. So if I keep doing it and I keep writing about something I don't want to write about or doesn't interest me, I will lose my audience. 
Mm-hmm. I have to keep writing about what I'm interested in writing about, so that's a pleasure to me. And so hopefully that I think it definitely gets you know people can sense that in your writing. Um, oh, here is a new monitor from so and so, and it has this feature and that feature, that feature. Well, after the twentieth one of those that you've written, you're like you know unless it's really revolutionary, I don't want to. Yeah, it's nine inches versus eight point five. Mm-hmm. So what? Uh, versus hey, you know I went to see The Hobbit and I saw it in forty eight frames. A second, I saw it 24, I saw it in 3D and non-3D. I wrote about that, and uh, close to half a million people have read that, art- that article in wow. a little over a month. So a lot of geeks out there. A lot of geeks, filmmakers, VFX people, Hobbit fans, you name it. And it's, it's an interesting discussion, because a lot of people react to the, the 48 frames a second differently. Mm-hmm. I'm not a fan of it. Other people think it's the best thing since life spread. So. We're talking about people getting into the art, students and uh, novice filmmakers and people learning. What percentage of their, their resources, be it time or money, do you think that they should dedicate towards you know, focusing on the equipment versus focusing on the craft, uh, learning versus buying, rather? Um, I think in an ideal world, you buy nothing um, because it's expensive. You rent, especially in the film world. I mean, buy a 5D Mark III or whatever and a lens, so you always have a camera with you. But, you know, maybe a slider or, or a tripod, but... You know, you don't need a technocrane or a helicopter or follow focus or all the other stuff. It, it gets expensive really quick. And, um, you know, or if you have a job where it's cheaper for you to buy everything than it is to rent because of logistics, sure. But it's not about buying gear. I mean, you can have all – I mean, I've met a lot of people who literally have everything but the kitchen sink, but they don't know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, and guess what? They're overwhelmed by the amount of gear they have, and they don't know how to use it, so it doesn't turn out well. Um I know people who have nothing and uh, produce amazing results, and those are people I find extremely inspire- inspiring. So, uh, you know, good examples: the Blair Witch Project was shot on a really crappy camera, but it was shot so well that no one cared. Mm-hmm. You know, Paranormal Activity, same thing, was done very small, you know, budgets type stuff initially, and had a huge return. You know, mm-hmm. so I'm not saying you should always do that, but don't let the gear stand in the way of you actually just going out and shoot. And this touches on our earlier story about Hawaii, where we're bogged down by equipment and that really hampered the production. So that's on the higher end scale and the lower end scale that can hamper people's creative abilities as well. People use it as a crutch. Mm-hmm. Say, I don't have this lens, I don't have access, I can't get to this building, uh, the weather's not nice. It's never a bad day to shoot a picture. The worst weather day can lead you to the most amazing pictures. Um, you, know, you have ideas of what you want, and if you've got a really clear vision, it has to be like this, and you wait. But that's very few of us. Most of us just need to get out there and shoot. And um, there's a weird thing that happens. When you just go out and shoot, people start calling you out of the woodwork for jobs. Or if you just sit at home and do nothing, there's no new stuff to show, and people are not going to call you. So, um, you know, I mean, we, I remember at the Jamie O'Brien job how we would show up at 5 or 6 o'clock in the morning with a red wine. It would take us 45 minutes to assemble it you know, with the rods and mat box and get it booted up. And then um, it's just, it's, you, you, unless you're shooting a film, you don't have that. You, you can't be mobile like that. So maybe that wasn't best to cam- the best camera to have there at the time. Maybe I should have shot everything with just a 5D Mark II handheld. The problem is I wanted to look like Hollywood. I wanted to, I had a Steadicam operator there. I wanted to look like the best stuff in the world. I didn't know enough to know that I needed so many more resources in terms of crew and timing and organization 
because the truth is, while we did try to organize it, the surfer would say, oh, the waves don't work well. We should, we're not surfing today. We're going to go scuba diving. And you and I had spent the entire night and morning prepping a steady cam. And he, he said, well, let's go scuba diving. I'm like, well, we've got to unmount the steady cam and get an underwater housing, which we would do. And he would change his mind again, and we nearly would have conniptions and nervous breakdowns because the water wasn't clear. You know, he would go in the water and say, oh, there's no visibility. You know, and that's, that's the danger of filmmaking and, and gear in general. So it's important to know that you know everybody makes mistakes. Everybody learns from their mistakes. Even you at your level, uh, everyone should know at their level that they're going to make some mistakes, but they need to learn from those mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, so and, and know what you can and can't do. On the short film I did this this weekend, the lighting's horrible. There's no lighting. But given what I was shooting and the budget and crew I had, I knew enough not to try and light it. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we brought some light panels to have a little fill here and there, but. You just you've got to realize that trying to do to light that job that I did this weekend would have killed us. You know, we would never have made our schedule given what we were shooting. So, and you, the problem is you only learn that from experience, which is why it's good to f- fall on your on your face, you know, face plant uh, a few times and learn some hard lessons and learn from them, so that when you do fail, when you don't make your budget or you don't make your days or you don't you're not able to edit your piece because you didn't get the shots, you know, a rookie mistake in filmmaking is you you. You concentrate so much on making every shot perfect that you run out of time and never get your end shot. So you, you have a story that never ends. And it's scary. It happens to all of us. It's never happened to me. Knock on whatever this is. Marble. Marble. And, um, you know, but you've got to realize as you're going that a film is not a photograph. If you've got this incredible sequence that doesn't never ends, you don't have a film. You've got a sequence. Mm-hmm. Um, so... You know, you learn a lot. I'm talking about little mistakes, Vince. I remember I was on a job with you, let's say, four or five years ago. Uh, We were in a pretty exclusive location. We had special access at uh, Grand Central. Mm -hmm. And uh, there were, I think, three camera bodies at play on the shoot. And one of the camera bodies we discovered at the end of the shoot was set on, I believe it was medium JPEG instead of full RAW. Uh, Vince remembers it well. And the whole uh, shoot, that camera was set on medium JPEG. And the camera had probably come in from a time-lapse shoot before that, which was the reason it was set there. And I think I didn't do a close examination of all three cameras, assuming that uh, it was where I had last left it the week before, which it had been changed, and I didn't double-check it that morning. And it's small mistakes like that that uh, you make that mistake, and you quickly realize that you don't you know, need to make that mistake again. You check it again more carefully. And you, you have to analyze, Mike has to analyze the mistake he made and why. And I have to, instead of screaming at Mike, saying, yeah, you know, you screw this up, say, did I, yes, Mike messed up, but first of all, did I overload him with too much other stuff that he didn't have time to properly prep each camera? Did I ask him to do 16 things instead of 10? Because had he had the 10 to do, which is what he can manage, which is already a lot to ask, he just didn't have time to do a dummy check, which we do, because he was, we were scrambling to catch that morning light, because we got late by 15 minutes, because... I didn't think about the parking, or my producer didn't think about parking, you know, and or the driver didn't have gas in the vehicle. I mean, remember the thing in Italy that we did? Absolutely. They, this was not our production, but they, it was a comical uh, series of events. Every morning we had four, three or four vehicles. One of the four vehicles didn't have fuel, so we'd have to spend 30 minutes going to the gas station with the other three vehicles just waiting. All the while trying to wrangle the Italian local assistants who kept watering off for espresso in the morning. Literally. And it was like, guys, at the end of each day, make sure we have fuel for the next day. Just like the battery charging with, with, with that we started off earlier. 
it's all basic stuff. It's mm-hmm. not sexy stuff, but mm-hmm. that's what makes a crew and a, a production go well. Mm-hmm. And I and, uh, and I could have gotten furious. I was we were laughing. Yeah. You know, I was laughing at you and Charles uh, and uh, Marcus too because being the good American. You know, production guys. We had a call time at seven a.m. and you guys were sitting in the hotel with all your gear, having had breakfast at seven a.m. Mm-hmm. You know, a call time means butt in seat, driving yeah. off. Yeah. Whereas the Italians would be waltzing down at seven fifteen, saying, "Hey, I have to have my espresso, my breakfast. What are you talking about?" And you guys get infuriated. And I basically yeah. told you, "Hey, guys, you're right in America. This is Italy. Yeah. So let's know to make the call time six a.m. next time and yeah. hope to be out by seven. And you guys know that we're not going to change." their way of working. And that's one of the most important things that, that I've learned uh, that I've carried through my work is that in this business, if you're on time, you're late. Yeah. And that's an incredibly important thing that if you have a call time... You know time, the saying, right? If you're, if, you're, if you're early, you're on time. If you're on time, you're late. If you're late, you're fired. Hmm. Great, great thing to live by. Absolutely. Well, I think with that... <laughs> <laughs> You're fired. You're fired. I, I uh, really appreciate your time, Vince. Sure, thank you. Um, I, we, we hope to have you back. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Just and, throw a uh, poker game and I'll be here. Oh, yeah. We got, we got a poker game going tonight. We got some photographers. Oh, I, I guess we can quickly say uh, poker, for me, mm-hmm. was a great networking tool when Absolutely. I first came into the city. Yeah. Um, you know, as a just out of college, interning at the, mm-hmm. the newspaper... And meeting all of Vince's friends and his friends' friends, now I I do business with many of them. Some of them represent me as an agent. Some of them hire me for various gigs. Um, So there's all sorts of different ways that photographers and videographers and whomever can make connections. And and just being social, not just social online, but social in person. It's pretty important. And not to view your uh, your fellow photographers or videographers as competitors, but rather partners and enable colleagues. them. Yep. Colleagues, exactly. They can help you grow your business and you can help them grow theirs. Yeah. If one of them forgets a lens one day, guess what? Lend them your lens. You'll make an instant friend for life. And when you screw up next time, they'll help you. And that was my career at the New York Times was a bunch of photographers that we were friendly with, especially the Olympics. We'd always forget stuff. We were great, you know, dead tired mentally. Mm-hmm. And that's a good thing to end on is that um, one of the things I've learned in photography and more so in filmmaking only because you work with more people is that at the end of the day it doesn't really matter how much money you do or don't make how much money you do or don't pay people hopefully you can always pay them well um, but you want to leave the set with people saying this person was a good person to work with it was a pleasurable experience you want your clients to be ecstatic but you also want your crew and your cast to be happy and want to work with you again and I think if you make a tremendous amount of money and get a tremendous amount of success and have a great reputation uh, in the public uh, public's eye, but the cast and crew and people you work with say, I never want to work with that person. Um, that would be a tremendous failure of a career for me. My priority has always been, you know, having people leave the set that I run or I help put together um, happy and content, uh, hopefully paid well, and if they didn't get paid well, have a fantastic experience, but never feel abused or taken advantage of uh, or uncared for because, you know, they were kept cold or unfed, simple stuff. Uh, even and I think it's something everyone should kind of live by is that you know we're all in this together and it's about enjoying the experience of making the photograph or the film uh, as much if not more than the final result and that was a big lesson that took me more than a decade to learn as a photographer I was always so focused on the end result as a photographer because it was generally just involved me and sometimes breaking Mike's you know cojones uh, That's balls in Spanish yeah uh, to Quibbles. get the, to get the pictures as quickly as you know as, as best we could 
and then as a filmmaker when you work with a bigger crew you realize you know what you, you can push people but you know, you've got to build some credit with them before you can ask favors and as long as they know you're pushing them to get an incredible result that's great but if you're just pushing them because you're disorganized or you don't know what you're doing then it really uh, takes a toll so uh, kind of leave a good web of uh, good experiences behind you um, not only the results but also the experience Awesome. Well, thanks, Vince, and thanks, Mike, for being with us for our first Photo Brigade podcast. And you can check out Vince's website at blog.vincentlaferre.com. That's with the silent T. And uh, check out thephotobrigade.com for more cool photo-related stuff. And Mike, what about you? Do you have a website you want to promote? Oh, you can visit me at uh, mikeisler.com or follow me on Twitter at, uh, at mikeisler. At Vincent Lafarre. At Robert Kaplan. All right. See you next time, guys. Thank you. <laughs>